0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. We're here in the depths of winter. We're here for you. Don't worry about it. We've got your back. Uh, we've got some podcasts for you coming. We've got lots of podcasts coming thick and Fast this Christmas. Um, and also, uh, we've got options for you. Now, if you're listening to this when this podcast comes out, it's a couple of days before Christmas. You're probably panicking. You're probably thinking you'd have presents for everybody. And you're right. You do need to buy presents for people. And you've got the history mad aunt coming to stay. I sure do. My aunt's history mad. She's the reason I love history. And uh, she's not getting... History Hit subscription for Christmas because she's already got one. She's a founding member, obviously. But you need to get your History Mad Aunt a History Hit subscription. It allows her to access the world's best history channel. She can watch hundreds of documentaries up on there Uh, and she never needs to complain ever again about the lack of history on mainstream television. She can leave you alone. Uh, And so that is a gift this Christmas and you're actually doing yourself a favor. Look after yourself, practice some self care. Get your History Mad Aunt a History Hit subscription. You can go to History Hit shop. You can do it now. It's too late to buy anything else. She doesn't want a smelly candle. She wants a History Hit subscription. Make it so. You do it on the Google. Go to the History Hit shop. Get her a subscription. It's the best thing you're ever going to do. Uh, and in the meantime, what, in fact, while you're doing it, that's not that a joy. While you're doing it, you can check out this podcast we've got going on. This time of year, emotions run high. We're happy. We're sad. The kids are hysterical. They're up, they're down. One minute they're euphoric, the next minute they're in a slough of despair. It's the wrong piece of Playmobil, whatever it might be. We all know what it's like this time of year, the highs and the lows. And that's a good time of year to talk about whether the Victorians were happier than us. Good segue. Some scientists, yes everyone, some scientists recently published a report saying that they've monitored the emotional tone of all the books and newspapers published over the last 200 years and they have suggested that Brits were happy in the 19th century. Now this, to anyone with a passing knowledge of actual history, is a load of balls. And we decided to get Hannah Woods onto the pod ASAP. She's a brilliant uh, 19th century historian. She knows what she's talking about. She's going to tell us about the reality of the 19th century and whether people were happier back then. I'm not, I don't want to be panglossian about it. I know we've got big problems today. We've got big problems around people watching each other's Instagram and feeling depressed. We've got problems around sugar and exercise and diet and mind-numbing jobs. But let me tell you, I'm glad I was not born in 1810. So let the brilliant Hannah Woods talk to you about the realities of life in uh, in the Victorian period and whether they were happier than us. And I think the upshot of this should be, at this time of year, you should be pretty damn happy that you're alive. When you are, enjoy the pod. I feel had the hand of history upon our shoulders.
1: All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world.
0: Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: This is a rapid response podcast because, of course, everyone saw on the internet the other day Mm. that study had come out saying Victorians were happier than we are. Yeah. And what did you make of that?
1: Um well I think I had the same reaction as most historians the history Twitter most... blew up. Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean I think we should always be very suspicious of anyone that claims to have found kind of the answer to such a broad question as were people happier in any given period or you know even kind of worse standards of living better or worse. You know in the 19th century But I think, you know, we also, as historians, need to be very careful of how we read sources. And I think one of the reasons the study has kind of produced so much anger is that the researchers, I mean, they're economists um, for a start. You know, historians obviously are always a little wary of um, other disciplines kind of tampering with what they think of as their territory. Um, But... The researchers have kind of mined basically, mined Google Books. They've kind of set algorithms to mine this archive of digitized sources for emotional language. So they've put in kind of terms that they think indicate happiness, terms that indicate sadness, and they're working on the assumption that um, happy people tend to read happy things, and cultures in which you know there are lots of negative words tend to be. I suppose they'd say more miserable, um, but that's, you know, fraught with problems. Yeah,
0: even even allow them that assumption, which mm. is pretty odd. Yeah. What is the problem with looking at written sources to gauge, and printed sources yeah. to gauge happiness in the 19th century?
1: Well, I think they give us a very uneven account. They certainly don't give us the thoughts and feelings of people who didn't have access to literacy, Um and, you know, we're much more likely to get the opinions of middle and upper class observers, people who had access to publication, access to kind of intellectual and literary networks. So we hear we hear their thoughts and feelings, and we hear very little about the thoughts and feelings of people who weren't able to write these accounts.
0: Okay, let me start there, because as a 19th century specialist, I don't know the answer to this. If you were a, a literate member of the elite, the urban elite in a professional job in London, would you be able to access uh, accounts of, of, of what was going on in the, in the slums and, and the work class areas of Britain at the time? Like you've got, we know Dickens' hard times, things like that, but would, would, would they be confronted with that quite often? Or would most, when you're studying these sources, are you actually struck by how uh, isolated they are?
1: Yeah I mean I think of course in the 19th century we're talking about a huge period of time uh, and I'd say in the earlier 19th century you know we had this rapid process of industrialization and urbanization you know whole new urban centers springing up you know almost literally overnight to meet this increasing demand for you know workers to fill factories and certainly In the early decades of the 19th century, we hear very little about what's going on inside these cities. Or I say we, you know, middle class, comfortable social observers, perhaps in the West End of London or in the countryside, you know, heard very little about what was going on. And then there started to be around about the 1840s, this huge upsurge of inquiry. Into what the conditions were like in these new industrial cities, you know, we have people like Friedrich Engels uh, going into industrial working-class um, places of living and work in Manchester, and really trying to illuminate, you know, the kind of terrible living conditions, um, you know, the increased mortality compared to the surrounding countryside, uh, and then going into the later 19th century. We see this kind of huge upswing of inquiry into urban working conditions and industrial living. Uh, We have people like Charles Booth in the 1880s and 90s, who is creating these kind of massive 17-volume studies, where he's really trying to map poverty street by street. Um, And this kind of you know really swings. There's a huge amount of popular interest in these things. there's almost a cottage industry of slum tourism where middle and upper class observers will you know, take trips into the slums to see for themselves what these conditions are like. And, you know, there's a kind of almost an amount of kind of gap yard tourism to it um, to kind of see how the underclass live. Um, but certainly, you know, this is these are things that, you know, people were well aware of. Although of course they imposed their own viewpoints over what life was like for the people who lived in these areas. But
0: it's after me, it sounds to me you was saying the trajectory, the volume of these sources, the popularity of these sources is—it's hard to relate them, particularly to the the, the, the ebbs and flows of, of happiness within within 19th century British society.
1: Yeah, I mean we're looking at kind of two almost completely yeah. different questions here. On the one hand, we're looking at measurable standards of well-being, you know, material conditions like wages and incomes, housing conditions, you know, we can look at quantitative trends in life expectancy, mortality, disease, you know, this is kind of one of the longest running uh, and most controversial debates in economic history, the standard of living question, you know, what happened to people's material standards of life. During the Industrial Revolution,
0: Let alone their mental health and their happiness, absolutely. You know, yeah. And on
1: the other hand, we have you know more qualitative developments. You know what these changes meant to the people who experienced them. You know how they felt about the changes that they were witnessing and the societies in which they lived. And you know, as historians, we need to turn to very different sources to get at these questions. You know, more kind of imaginative and experiential sources, you know, perhaps as well as social commentary and journalism. We could look at literature and art um, for kind of imaginative representations of life. Or we could look at people's, you know, first-hand testimonies themselves their autobiographies, memoirs, diaries. You know, even towards the end of the period, we have oral history studies of people who could remember life, you know, right at the end of the 19th century.
0: So let's park this odd study that I hope they could do it all with AI and find mm. this algorithm. The historians... You are giving that a are uh, uh, not giving that your, your seal of approval mm. right okay let's come to that second, but it's actually much more interesting because i'm someone who's a little i'm in danger of being a bit panglossian about it and i'm in danger I, I, I feel especially as a healthy um, straight, affluent white male in in Britain today. I, I think the world's pretty bloody amazing, right? And and I think his, my study of history has shown me I'm pretty glad I'm not alive in the 5th century AD. I'm pretty glad I'm not alive when the great heathen army landed in Humber and marched across the Midlands. And I'm also pretty glad I'm not alive, for example, during Spanish influenza or, you know, in an era... I'm happy that I have an era with dentistry and dating apps, right? It's good. Um, now, but but... At the same time, there is a thing here, which is that we do have this kind of mental health catastrophe going on So, society. So how do you think about 19th century living standards among the great mass of the population? Were they improving? And can we make a judgment about whether people were happier, happier, um, And also happier than what? Than they might have been had there not been an industrial revolution. So there you go. Big question. Take it away.
1: Yeah, huge question, of course. Um, You know, I think we can say with some confidence that, you know, there were, of course, material improvements. You know, this is the birth of kind of modern society as we know it, the foundations of technological change, um, medical advances, of course. You know, all these kind of things that are transforming our lives, we see you know, people starting to share in the benefits. We do know that it takes quite a long time from the kind of start of the Industrial Revolution for improvements in these material standards to kind of trickle down to the working classes. You know, we used to have kind of quite optimistic economic historians who'd say, you know, really quickly from the birth of the Industrial Revolution, living standards doubled, life was great. Um, And increasingly, we kind of, historians are being a little bit more pessimistic, cautiously optimistic, saying that, you know, it's only until... The late 19th century, the incomes start to rise, mortality in cities starts to fall. Yeah,
0: so the big things you can do, you can, we know about mortality. Yeah. It, fall, it falls, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, you, people live longer, kids less likely to die in the 19th century.
1: Yes, broadly speaking. Although, of course, there's huge local and regional yeah. variation. Um, but it, it's interesting you kind of say that we you know, think of our happiness now in the sense of a mental health crisis, you know, despite all these improvements that we wouldn't be without, we're somehow, you know, all is not quite well in modern society. But Victorians, you know, had their own mental health crisis. The late Victorian era is, you know, a hugely anxious age. We have this image of the late Victorians as, you know, stiff upper-lipped, stoic, sexually repressive. But this is, a very partial story about the period. Um, It's, you know, it was felt that modern life and modern living was really taking its toll on the late Victorians. You know, we might think of the late Victorian period as a time kind of before the modern age, but, you know, it was a time of rapid technological change and people were adjusting to new forms of communication with the birth of the suburbs, people were kind of Living further and further away, and commuting, and experiencing all these things that we think of as quintessentially modern, and they felt that it was causing a huge crisis in mental health. Um, what we'd now think of as anxiety, their kind of formulation for it was nervousness, and all sorts of conditions were invented by physicians to kind of describe what they felt of you know newly anxious people in an anxious age. So. American physician George M. Beard coins this term neurasthenia, which we kind of probably think of as an anxiety disorder now. Um, you know, he felt that people were suffering from kind of fatigue, irritability, nervousness, indigestion, heart palpitations, and he said that modern nervousness is the cry of the system struggling with its environment. So that as people adjusted to kind of more unnatural, we might say, living conditions in cities that this pace of, you know, the bustle of urban life, the hurry, increasingly competitive working conditions were, you know, really exacting a psychological toll. Hey, Sleepyhead, why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to NectarSleep.com.
0: or prevent any disease. And can I'm reminded? I think it's in um, Jude the Obscure, Thomas Hardy. That he looks at Jude goes back and there's this sort of threshing scene or something. Some uh,
1: countryside activity, right? Yeah. yeah, it's always
0: in intense, right? Yeah. And they're all having a lovely time, and it's jolly England, and they're all drinking. And, it, and then the threat, then the mechanized machine comes in. It's all dark, and they're all enslaved to this machine. But and of course there is an element of truth, and we all recognise that in our world as well. But the problem is that is that an unrealistic depiction of agrarian society before the Industrial Revolution. You know, we we like to think it was this sort of pre-Lapsarian world. That's the the bit I think is so interesting to try and get hold of.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a viewpoint that, you know, we share with the Victorians in some ways. um, The
0: simple life.
1: You know, something I've looked at in my PhD research um, is working-class autobiographies, you know, the accounts of ordinary men and women who grew up in the late 19th century and were writing their accounts in the middle of the 20th. And they reflect back on how society changed. Many of them have moved, grown up in the countryside um, and moved to cities for life and work. And they are not nostalgic whatsoever mm. for, you know, the good old days, you know, simple country pleasures. They remember it as a time of hunger, poverty, Mm. limited cultural horizons. Of course, if you move to cities, you have access to libraries, museums, parks, you know, exciting city streets. Um, And people in their droves chose to move, to live and work in cities. Um, But I think there's a distinction we need to make here, which is that they just because people moved to cities and enjoyed them, just because they chose to work in factories because they felt that offered them better opportunities didn't necessarily mean that they kind of morally approved of industrialization. You know, I think it's perfectly compatible to say that one enjoyed one's life in London, but felt that industrial capitalism had really failed people, that it presented huge opportunities to lead to a reduction in working hours and better standards of living, and that technologies actually hadn't been used in that way and were making people more anxious.
0: Which again is a very modern phenomenon as well. Mm. So, okay, so we've met, so less kids less like to die, you are like to live longer. Um, in, in, how about m- money, um, cost of living, uh, hunger, as you say, real proper absolute poverty, ignoring, of course, the fact that we know that mental health can be very tied up with relative poverty, but in terms of absolute poverty, um, were, pe- people were, had more, had more, did they? I mean, they were, the normal working person in Britain in, in the year 1900 was, was sort of less poor, were they, than 100 the years previously?
1: I think we can say that more people than ever before were enjoying a reasonably comfortable standard of living. Certainly in the second half of the 19th century, we see an explosion in mass com- consumer society. You know, disposable incomes are becoming available to more and more people for the first time. And we have kind of new kind of groups of social subclasses kind of springing up like the respectable working class, the lower middle class. You know, people who are living relatively comfortable lifestyles have been able to take advantage of the opportunities that industrialisation and urbanisation offered. But we also have more people than ever before in abject poverty. Um, Charles Booth, for instance, when he does his 17-volume study where he's trying to map living standards in London, he begins the study because he's very sceptical of the assertion of socialists and Labour politicians that... Um, a, third, a quarter of people in London live in poverty. He, he thinks that's implausible, um, and at the end of his, you know, decades-long, seventeen-volume study, he realizes it's actually a third by his own definition of people who are still living in poverty right at the end of the night. And do they
0: century. have a? Do they, he obviously has a definition for that. I mean, that's not a proportion of medium wealth or anything. Is that is that people who don't have the, the stuff to to live? whole lives.
1: Yeah, he has all these kinds of subdivisions.
0: Which we do today as well. We, we yeah. talk about pop. So, okay, so then bring it back today. So is your sense, though, that you'd rather be uh, a minimum wage um, worker in London today or in a, and a sort of equivalent, if there was one, in London 120 years ago?
1: Of course I'd rather, you know, we'd all rather be in the 21st century um,
0: but you say that, but that's I think there's some people who who assume that the past was better,
1: yeah, although I think there's a strange paradox in the way we talk about the good old days, you know, looking at this um study that was you know reported in The Times that caused all the controversies with historians, you know, on the one hand, people say, oh, it was the good old days, you know it was the days of community, you know we we worked hard, but we were happy you know, and I use kind of we advisorly there but you know in this in this discourse people do often use the we as if we could recover the victorian age um but on the other hand there's like a fetishism of hardship i Mm. think in the way we talk about the past um,
0: it was good. It was good thing that we were queuing for running water. Like yeah, it was be- it's better that you're out in the street.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and I think we see also a nostalgia for the Second World War and for the Blitz. Spirit as Britain's finest hour. That there's, we don't react very well to comfort. I think as a society, and I think throughout history there has been this thread of a kind of resistance to people being comfortable.
0: Well, I think is that is that the man is is that the kind of military political complex, thinking that comfortable people are less likely to, to put on their khaki and pick up a rifle and follow them into battle. Is, that, is there some, there's something around that, is there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, comfort's a passive state yeah. of affairs.
0: Frankly, if everyone was comfortable, the world would be a much better place. Yeah, and... Chilling in armchairs like us, chatting, pretty good setup. Yeah,
1: and late Victorians, of course, furious with comfort. You know, they were absolutely keen to return to militarised virtues, yeah. absolutely, you know, Spartan um, kind of physical prowess. You know, there is a whole, you know, discourse of this idea of crisis and masculinity in the period that... People need to recover the kind of robust health, strength and vigour of a pre-industrial people before these modern comforts. Um, And that is really a reaction to perceptions of anxiety and mental ill health in the Victorian era that, you know, we can... This is the Victorian phrase, mens sana, in corpore sano, that you restore a healthy mind by giving yourself a healthy body.
0: Okay, so this is an interesting thought. If if we're not going to learn... If if we're not going to... Copy the Victorians in that respect. So we don't suddenly think that everyone needs to rediscover their physical robustness. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, in what way should we be studying and, and, and copying the nineteenth century? Is is it a way of ensuring that we can have this technological change, this extraordinary societal transformation, and and attempt to redistribute or make sure that the advantages are being felt more evenly?
1: Yeah, I think inequality is key here. You know, we kind of often say when we talk about the past, oh, well, perhaps, you know, things were different then people didn't know any different. But of course, in the Victorian era, there was this enormous spectacle of social inequality.
0: So, yeah, I mean, people in the 9th century, like today we say, oh, everyone's on Instagram, so they know that they are poorer than Beyonce. But people in the 9th century were very aware that other people were fantastically wealthy in that society, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, throughout the Industrial Revolution, you know, industrial capitalists, you know, people were very aware that they had been made rich at the working class's expense. You know, there is an increasing element of kind of segregation in cities. You know, thinking of London, the division into the West End and the East End, and that these are almost two different worlds. Um, you know, and it, it's a theme that we see, you know, in the middle of the Victorian era as well. Um, novels like Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South or Benjamin Disraeli's Sybil, where he talks about, you know, Britain is actually a, a country of two nations, you know, divided into the rich and the poor. And I think, you know, huge amounts of people in the late 19th century certainly were calling for a radical redistribution of wealth. You know, this is, this is the birth of the Labour movement and the birth of socialism.
0: So you're very glad you were born when you were? Yeah. As am I. Um, but are there things that you think in your study of the past, that we, that we can learn and that we should be trying to channel rather than just jettison the whole thing and so say, thank God we're alive today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in the first instance, we need to be aware that every age has had similar concerns. You know, we might be concerned now with social isolation and, and loneliness and anxiety in the digital and social media age. These were anxieties that you know, late Victorians shared. Um, we're anxious that we've lost touch with nature. This was something that Victorians were also terribly anxious about. Um, and you know, there's, there's a huge movement in the late Victorian era to kind of return back to the land, to kind of capture what has been lost, to recapture what's been lost in the transition to industrialization. You're know, thinking of William Morris and the arts and crafts movement, um, you know, these real attempts to kind of re-harness the positive elements of the past to the present. And I think we can almost kind of see parallels in hipsters today. Um, you know, this attempt to, you know, accept and to enjoy the fact that we live in a digital hyper-connected age, benefiting from all sorts of modern technologies. but that it's also important to recover a sense of handicrafting you know, craft beer. Um, you know, Victorians too were, you know, very into their kind of handmade clothes and sandals, vegetarianism, all these health lads. Um But I think the problem is we tend to hate people who want to take the good elements of the past and infuse those in the present and don't want to then accept kind of lower standards of living in the past that come along with it. And I think that's kind of bizarre.
0: Well, I'm so naive that I've always thought that history was about looking at the past, jettisoning the bits that were rubbish and trying to maintain the good bits. Yeah. So um, thank you for helping me do that today. That is outstanding. Now, you've got a big book project potentially coming out, which you're going to come back on the podcast and tell us about soon. But uh, how can people follow you and the work you do in the meantime?
1: Um, I'm on Twitter, at Hannah Rosewoods, um, please do follow me there for history jokes, ramblings, <laughs> angry threads about economists, um, and I sometimes write for The New Statesman as well, so you can find me there.
0: Thanks very much for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me. I feel we
0: have the hands of history upon our shoulders.
1: All this of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world.
0: He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.